I mean, the, the justification still up to this day for why a lot of the territories can't vote in general elections for the president is that we're members of alien races and we don't understand democracy. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. You raise walls, I destroy them. Let's see who prevails. Just because something works doesn't mean that it cannot be improved. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Allow my sword to join you in the fight against evil. The world needs us to chase dreams. We have to dedicate ourselves each and every single day to this fight because I can't do it alone. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines. The power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful. To make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us all unite. Welcome to the Skiffney Fantasy Show. Settled a few feet above the highest hill of Water Island, humming like a beehive. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. And today we're here with Cadwell Turnbull. Welcome to the show, Cadwell. Thank you for having me. So, Cadwell is a genre author from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, his work has appeared in Asimov's, Lightspeed, a bunch of other places, even in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy of 2018. But we're here today to talk about... The Lesson, which is his new novel, sort of an alien invasion story with its own sort of unique take. And so I want to start by having you tell us a little bit about this book, about The Lesson. All right. So The Lesson is an alien first contact novel set in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I've talked about it as Aliens in the Caribbean. It takes place five years after the Ina have arrived and settled in the Virgin Islands. They have integrated into society and it follows three families as they try to adjust to the Ina presence and all the conflicts and tensions that arise within the community. There's some elements of sci-fi horror. Um, it explores issues of belief, um, sexuality, colonialism, trauma, um, cycles of violence, etc. One of the things you brought up already makes me want to dive into this big question I wanted to talk about, which is the way that your book deals with the concept of colonization, because in the book, the way it is framed, uh, the Ina are sort of presented as benevolent, uh, sort of benevolent people, right? The benevolent invaders who don't mean, don't mean to cause any problems, except, well, of course, when there are issues of uh, transgressions against them, in which case their reactions are very extreme. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you were trying to explore the thematic of colonization in the lesson, you know, the, the contradictions there and the problems that that presents. So the book actually was inspired by a dream that I had in my early 20s. In the dream, there were aliens that had integrated into a small town and they looked and acted like humans, but responded to minor threats with extreme brutality. If you um, insulted them, they might murder you um, in the most horrible way imaginable. And so um, because the dream was so, so traumatic, it stuck with me for a really long time. And when I started working on what would become the lesson, I moved that idea, those aliens integrated into society from that small town, um, nondescript, small white town in the U.S. to the Virgin Islands because I wanted to write about home. 
And as I did that, it immediately became apparent that there were some parallels to colonialism in the way that European powers treated indigenous people, treated um, um, Africans during, um, during the slave era, um, and even now how, how authority responds to um, marginalized communities. All these things became readily apparent as I was thinking about the Ina. Um, because the Ina respond to minor threats with extreme violence, and it's, it's um, meant to be a kind of um, assertion of power, it, it, it was easy for me to see how that could be paralleled with how European, um, European um, colonies tried to control their slave populations through the use of extreme force and extreme violence. So to piggyback off of that statement, the book itself actually has a lot of references to that history of the Virgin Islands, uh, wherein the Ina are actually present during uh, some of the most significant parts of uh, Caribbean history, in particular the slave era. And I kind of wanted to get a sense from you about what the book is trying to say in terms of the interplay between the Ina as uh, alien visitors from another world and them sharing the history of colonial struggle in that sense of being literally present in the work. Right. So, I mean, the, the Ina and how they behave and what they believe isn't a direct parallel to how Europeans acted and behaved in the Caribbean, but there are, um, some notable similarities, some um, notable connections there. The Ina are doing the things that they're doing to protect themselves or to, um, to assert themselves within the universe. And I feel like oftentimes what drove um, European colonization, what drove um, the, the expansion of the world powers out into um, communities of color was uh, a desire to assert themselves within their universe to be dominant, to expand their power. And the Ina are trying to do that within the Virgin Islands. It's different um, how they're doing this and what their motivations are specifically, but some of those larger things are quite similar. And as I was working on the lesson, it, it became important to um, both explore those similarities, but also complicate them with their differences. I have scenes in the book that are set during um, Danish um, slave society in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And those were meant to be in conversation with how the Ina were acting and behaving in the present. And also to talk about and think about how humans respond to oppression. So like one of the scenes in the book takes place during a slave insurrection in St. John in 1733. And it's it's a direct parallel to how some of the um, modern Virgin Islanders respond to the Ina um, killing members of their community. Those, those parallels developed over time. Um, they were kind of an evolution of my, my thought process as I was working on the book. And at first, I did not necessarily know what those connections were. I just knew that they were something about that made sense. And I wanted both of those things to be in the book. And so I, I, I tried my best to render both of those realities next to each other so that, we, um, so that I could look at them and prod them and, and make 
interesting parallels between them. So a lot of this is a lot of what I really liked about the book is the way that you sort of draw in a lot of the sort of very real world concerns as a way of exploring this not real scenario, right? Because as far as we know, the Ina don't don't yet exist. If they could show up tomorrow, I suppose, it's entirely possible, in which case you'll become a prophet. Uh, probably not what you were hoping for, but... <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that I, I love is that the you know Brandon and I were talking about this before we got on the podcast of the way that your books very much looks at a lot of things that are issues that you see in a lot of Caribbean literature, but you deal with it in its own sort of unique way, which is the sort of big events that sort of serve as catalysts that affect people's lives. And naturally, the Enar are like one of the big events, but there are other things like puberty, right, and like growing up. Patrice is a big example of this, and she even has her own experience that I found really fascinating where she goes to the mainland to go to school, which is a fairly common theme in a lot of Caribbean literature. And I was curious if you were drawing on personal experiences and sort of making those really rooted in the sort of world that you're very familiar with, or uh, where you kind of saw all all of these kinds of elements really working together. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I went away to school when I was 18, and I left the Virgin Islands. And it was... It was a really eye-opening experience for me. It was when I started having questions about my own beliefs about the world, about my relationship to um, higher power and all of those things. And so in a lot of ways, Patrice mirrors a lot of that journey. She's already starting to think about and um, dismantle her belief systems before the Ina arrive. And then the Ina arrive and complicate that. And I was very much interested in showing these characters before anything happened so that the Ina aren't seen as the, they're a big part of the novel, but they're not the center of the novel. They're not meant to be the great catalyst. A lot of the things that they, they've they already, a lot of the things that they're dealing with, they've already started to deal with. And the Ina are, the Ina are just complicating those things. And that was really important for me to do. It was also important for me to have multiple characters and multiple perspectives responding to the Ina and not just one single narrative. When I was working on the book, it started out as being stories set in that world. But as I developed it over time and it started to become the novel that it eventually became, I started, I I guess I developed a, a real interest and passion in representing perspective. That perspective illuminates things that a single uh, point of view cannot. And so I have characters that are dealing with faith. I have characters that are dealing with their sexuality in the backdrop of this whole Ina um, ordeal. And I have characters that are dealing with midlife crisis, um, failing marriages, avenging siblings, um, mortality. And those things are, those things are bigger than the Ina. And I wanted those things to have room within this larger narrative. I'm glad that you brought this idea up of of the way that you sort of explore a variety of perspectives as they effectively live their lives uh, in in ways that compared to the Ina may seem like, well, this is rather mundane, but it's actually, this is kind of like the human experience. Like we go through these things and you brought up, or you know, name him by name, but Jackson, who has had some struggles. But one of the things I loved about him was that you had him go from being a, a you know, sort of high school teacher to becomes a university instructor who teaches post-invasion fiction. 
which given that I, I happen to be a university professor is almost exactly how I would cope with something like an alien invasion happening, which is like, let's have a class on this because I need I need my own academic way of addressing this, this my own academic therapy. And so uh, <laughs> right. I was curious, uh, how did you see yourself sort of drawing on the academic world as a way of, I mean, did you see yourself as using that as a way of like showing how Jackson copes? And is that something you saw as like all these characters are dealing with or coping with this change in their own unique and strange ways and just academia just happened to be a natural flow for Jackson. So Jackson is really interesting. He is he is trying to cope through this um this class that he's teaching. He's also trying to cope through his research. Um and he's he's trying to cope with two things at once and this also goes back to me trying to show that personal stories have value even within something as big as an alien occupation. So um, Jackson has just recently um, divorced from his wife and he's using his research and his teaching to kind of disappear into work so that he's not thinking about that. And he's also obsessing about the Ina because he's having difficulty coping with the fact that um, there's an alien presence in the world. And I think that um, teaching post-invasion lit is a way that he would cope personally, but it's also a way that the world is coping. And I and I was thinking a lot about how the Ina presence would affect fiction, how it would affect media. And so that's one of the things I wanted to explore. Like it would change the way that people made movies. It would tra- it would change the way that people wrote stories, and it would create this you know really interesting debate between literary um, writers and genre writers because what happens when a genre thing comes true? Um, what do literary writers do then? And so it was something that I wanted to explore kind of tangentially, but also have it inform what's going on with, with Jackson and also what's going on with Derek, because he's taking that class as well and thinking about these issues as well. Yeah, I love it. You, you say like, what happens when genre things happen in the real world to genre writers? And I'm just thinking <laughs> like cyberpunk <laughs> is having this problem because all these bizarre things that folks were thinking about in the 80s are like coming true. And it's like, what do we do? <laughs> is it still cyberpunk now? Is it is it literary? I you know, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, like, I just want to, like, add to that that one of the things that I thought was so interesting was that uh, post-invasion fiction was a thing precisely because uh, it's very much what's already happened to Caribbean lit post-colonialism. And I thought that the fact that you were aware of that was very keen. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, um, I don't, I don't think it's, particularly odd for the Caribbean to to um find themselves within this discipline of post-division lit. It just it's something and the whole novel as a whole is exploring this. It's invasion makes sense um in a unique way to um the diaspora, to places that have been colonized a time time and time again. So aliens showing up and and um people being distrustful of them and feeling like they're being subjugated. I think that um the Caribbean is uniquely primed to be very suspicious of the Ina. And it's something that I thought was really cool that they are the, they are uniquely primed to be suspicious, but they're also the ones directly affected by the Ina coming. Yeah. There's just a lot to chew on now. <laughs> uh, Cause it's, it is and this idea that, that, you know, 
the the Caribbean is sort of in its in its own way very uniquely positioned to think about a lot of these questions, and you know it, it's interesting when I think of like a lot of other stories where there's some form of a first contact or or alien invasion, right? Most of those stories are usually set either in the English speaking West or specifically in the U.S. Sometimes in England. Uh, you know, we've had some exceptions recently, like things like District Nine, which is sort of first contact it mostly sort of skips forward and then goes straight into let's just do apartheid again uh which is not recommended but i think it's so interesting that that in a lot of those um, stories that are about america like yeah we're suspicious but our suspicions are so often funneled through like but really we're we want to make sure that like we have control of this thing because there's the cold war going on or there's there's other things going on uh, like i can think of all of these these stories where you know the, the aliens show up and everyone's like oh they must be russians uh, because that's that's just how it works in a lot of those stories. But from a sort of Caribbean perspective, right, there's that perhaps a deeper suspicion because these are issues that, unlike Americans who've been able to sort of, most Americans at least, have been able to just sort of ignore a lot of this past history, that's not something in the Caribbean because that stuff is sort of being reminded in its own unique way. Uh, I'm speaking as an outsider, so maybe I'm full of crap, but that that seems to be something that at least from the literature is something that shows up quite a lot. Uh, but you two have the the much more personal perspective, so maybe you can tell me I'm I'm full of full of crap. <laughs> well, I think that um, to add to that, I think it's it's really immediate when when in the Caribbean, um, thinking about specifically how the United States responded to Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria um, during the 2017 hurricane season. The fact that I could not get any news about the Virgin Islands and how the Virgin Islands was doing, and everyone was on Facebook, all of the people that were abroad, just messaging each other, trying to get someone on island to check up on um, their family members. And all the news was talking about was um, the landfall in Florida that hadn't happened yet. And so there's, there's this real sense that of feeling erased, um, being a part of a a society actively engaging within it because a lot of Virgin Islanders serve in the military and they can't vote for the president. But then when, when, um, when disaster happens, we also don't know what's going on. No one's really thinking about us until the aftermath. And it was one of the things that also became really interesting to explore in the book, having, having the Ina be there um, committing these atrocities and no one caring because it's not convenient to care about us. And so I just think that we talk about colonization as if it happened in the past. It's present tense. And and in the Caribbean, that is the experience of a lot of us. Like it hasn't gone away. It's immediate. And we get it in a way that is just, it's right in our face all of the time. And it's really difficult to deal with and try to figure out what our relationships are to the to the powers that control us, that um, that oversee our economies, our governments, it's it's a really it's a really interesting and fraught relationship now, and it always has been. And so, writing about aliens invading, it just seems to make sense to think about how those things relate to all of the stuff that I just described. Yeah, you bringing up Irma. Uh, I was in Florida during Irma, and I I remember the news coverage, and 
the one thing that really bothered me, and it's a thing that bothers me a lot with weather reporting, is like something will happen and it'll affect some area, but sometimes they just won't tell you what exactly that means. So I remember them reporting on the U.S. Virgin Islands and then um, later on they were reporting on Puerto Rico. And they would just say things like, oh, it's just totally destroyed. And I was like, what the hell does that actually mean? The Virgin Islands got smashed. Uh, Puerto Rico got smashed. Uh, the Keys got smashed. All these places. And it's just, I don't know. It's, it is weird that we don't always think about the humans that are actually involved in these things and how important information actually is to the people who are either from there, have family there, friends there, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine what that sounds like for someone living in Florida worried about the hurricanes coming, but hearing that St. Thomas is completely destroyed. Right. It's horrifying. It's um, apocalyptic. And so, I mean, the, the justification still up to this day for why a lot of the territories can't vote in, in, um, in general elections for the president um, is that we're members of alien races and we don't understand democracy. You know, this is still, this is still how we talk about it. And it's just horrifying Thinking about that and then thinking about the kind of response that we got when those hurricanes hit, the, the neglect, it's, it, it makes, I'm not, I'm not surprised that people would feel like they, they're being um, dehumanized by that. Like, just hearing you describe that actually got me a little angry because, <laughs> I mean, I live in the Caribbean. I experienced that uh, hurricane season just as much as everybody else. Um, Trinidad was spared most of the terrible circumstances, but like I, I kept being so like painfully aware of the fact that places like the U.S. Virgin Islands were in this weird kind of um self-contradictory space of being um talked about like it's the Caribbean and doesn't matter to the rest of the world but still having this tie to empire that cannot be shaken and you can't even rely on it for assistance was a thing that kind of troubled me a lot during that hurricane season. And I didn't know how to uh, fathom it. And now um, seeing a similar kind of conflict uh, in the novel between the relationship the Ina have with locals and in the present and in the past a kind of parallels that in my mind to me the sense of being two kinds of people being someone who has been here and experienced certain kinds of things but still always be being seen as separate as without yeah definitely um and it's one of those things that i i briefly i wanted to limit it to the u.s virgin islands and some people have, have asked me about why didn't i talk about the states i just didn't want to center anywhere else. I wanted it to be about this particular small place. Um, but you do get some information about how the rest of the world is responding to these things. And they're, they're benefiting a lot from the Ina presence. They, they're, um, the Ina have given them solar technology, cures for cancer um, and other diseases. Um, and they're directly benefiting from those gifts without actually experiencing any of the harm. It's kind of the way the um, empire treats the Caribbean in relationship to hurricanes. It's um, what often happens after a hurricane, and it happened after Irma, was a lot of people left the island because their homes were gone, their jobs were gone, their um, valuables were destroyed. And immediately when that happens, um, people come in and buy up property. 
they buy up land, they um they buy up businesses, and it, it's actually referred to as disaster capitalism. And is this kind of like not having to deal with directly because the Caribbean always has to deal with a hurricane. Sometimes hurricanes reach mainland, but every hurricane season, the Caribbean has to worry about the storms. And so they're dealing with that hands-on, having to deal with this, um, these disasters, suffering from these disasters. And then their reward for that is losing their land, losing their, their livelihoods, and other people are benefiting from that destruction. And so there's a lot of really interesting parallels between this disaster capitalism and how, we're, how the rest of the world is responding to the Ina presence. No one cares that the Ina are killing local people. It's one of those things that I think has just a, a ton of parallels and it's really, it's really important to think about that when engaging with, I don't know, with, with the novel. You could even pull it into a lot of different contexts of thinking about the way that we intentionally or unintentionally dehumanize people, you know, because they're over there. Um, you know, horrible things are happening to them, but it's happening over there. Everything over here is fine. And so we'll just focus on the, the, the quote unquote good. You know, I was thinking like war zones, like in the U.S. we're having these these debates about whether or not like we should hold soldiers accountable who like murder children and enemy combatants like in cold blood. And there are people here literally sitting around going, well, it's fine. Like, well, they, they're just bad guys, right? And I'm just like, you have, you've just automatically, like, just condemned all these people you don't even know to just die horrible deaths. And, like, you, there's no pause for you to think, like, maybe that makes me terrible. All of these things tie together, right? There's no, there's no thinking about how systems of oppression create these kind of conflicts. It's always, um, it's always framed as if, these people are intrinsically bad or they're they're not deserving of our compassion or our our concern because of of these realities that are so distant from the ones that we um experience on the day to day but we don't think about how how we create those things how we create these disparities through our systems of um our capitalist system our um systems of governance our systems of of hierarchy what what country gets resources? Um, who who has the right to decide the 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 fate of the world? Who get, who has the right to decide how everyone should live and behave and act within within the um, within our world within our global society? And so, I mean, all of these things really tie together. The the, the fact that we do not think about how our practices are the things that we benefit from affect people elsewhere and 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 why it's important to not to not forget about people just because they're not in our in our immediate sight so uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna very awkwardly transition us to a slightly different topic because i want to make sure that we can talk about the structure of this book because it's i think it's really interesting that it uh, you know, it begins with these chapters that are effectively counting down 
Um, and if you didn't read the back cover, you didn't actually know what the countdown was for. And so that was my fun surprise of discovery of like what's about to happen because it's counting to something. Uh, but I thought what's interesting is that in addition to that sort of initial counting, you also have all of these characters who are remarkably interconnected, right? You have like Patrice and Derek are connected to Jackson, uh, and you have Jackson connected to uh, Lisa and these other, and there's tons of other characters that have connections and some are more centralized than others. And I was curious about, you know, because the story, it is, has this huge backdrop of this big worldwide changing thing, but it is very much about the sort of personal canvas versus the wide canvas, even though that wider canvas is, is implied and it's there and we do have some of the of the flashbacks which we've talked about and things, but it's so much about these personal lives. And so I was curious what sort of, what was your inspiration for sort of exploring the story in this way, in this very interconnected way? I mean, some of it was by accident. I started out um, very much novels, and I, I don't know if this is true for you as well, but um, um, Brendan, if maybe you can talk about this, but novels are quite intimidating to write. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so when I started out, I, I definitely did not have ambitions of writing a novel. I was, um, I was very much like, you know, these are short stories, and I'm thinking about this world, and I'm, I'm exploring this world. And it became, well, my advisors in, in my MFA program kept telling me that it was a novel. And they were like, these stories you keep submitting, you know it's a novel, right? And because novels are intimidating, I would resist that idea. And, but as I was writing, as I started writing more and more parts of the story, I started recognizing, and it was happening quite organically, that there was a larger story happening in the background and alongside of the stories that I was telling. And I it, it came to the point where I couldn't I couldn't deny it anymore. And I started actually um intentionally structuring the novel in the way that it looks now. Um and and this happens like you I don't know, oftentimes writers talk about things as if there was a plan in the beginning. <laughs> like they um they 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 were divinely inspired to write, do a thing a certain way, or it came to them all at once. Um, that was not how this happened at all. It was something that came over time, and it just started to make sense over time. And I developed through working on it this way, this you know sort of belief that it's important to to show different people experiencing a thing from different angles, and that the the um, the Ina. And their story isn't the most important story and it shouldn't have precedence over everything else. And I think that's also like, you know, me, me rebelling against um, narratives that center powerful or influential people or or not narratives with single protagonists. I think it, it feeds into a global story that marginalizes a lot of people and um and rejects the idea of how community acts within the how the world changes. That it's not individual brilliant people, but it's it's a, a bunch of people acting together and having conversations and challenging each other. And so it was really, as I was working on this, it became important to show that no, all of these people are living their lives, and those things are important too. And What's happening with the Ina is is informing how they live their lives, and it's it's leading to something. You know, it's building towards a um, um eventual confrontation, 
But that's not the only important thing to see here. It's important to think about how these people are processing their um, their internal conflicts, and you know how does that how does that relate to their actions um, towards each other, as well as towards Aina. I want to follow most of that like very very closely, because one of the things that I noticed very early in the novel and kind of noticed that it was a very big trend in the book is that there are a lot of uh, focuses on characters' uh, romantic and emotional relationships with each other, and particularly a kind of idea of what makes people consider some of those relationships uh, unnatural, as one character says, or like otherwise emotionally complex. Like there are characters who discover uh, queerness as a result of um, a a fling. There are characters who have illicit attractions with their students. Uh, Derek obviously has a very uh, close kind of emotional bond with uh, the ambassador of the Ina. And I kind of wanted to uh, find out from you, um, like, how did that conversation about those romantic directions kind of come out of the process of telling these personal stories that are often just as big as this big thing that is taking place in the background. Yeah. Um, so I didn't necessarily know that the Ina would have relationships with humans. Um, I, at first I didn't think that that was going to be something that would, would be a part of their, that would be a particular conflict within the book, but it eventually it became, especially through thinking about Derek and his his attraction to Mira, it became apparent that well, the Ina, I don't think would have a problem with having developing relationships and having relationships with humans. I just think that they wouldn't particularly value those relationships as equal to the relationships that they have with other Ina, and so it was it was um interesting to explore that. And think about, well, you know, how does um, power dynamics affect relationships? And how does, um, how does attitudes or beliefs that are culturally influenced affect relationships? So the Ina do have relationships with humans. There's a few, um, a few um, contexts within the book where Inas are in, the Ina are engaged with human beings in different ways. And you can see immediately how their culture has influenced the way that they act with those within those relationships. They um, very much treat the humans as subordinate. And so also thinking about how, well, how does that play out with human beings? So there's, you know, Jackson is, has an attraction to a student and the student is um, in some ways um, engaging him in this kind of, um, this, this um, um, discussion of, well, what, what are the rules here and do we really have to follow them and all of this stuff? And it, it was really, I guess, interesting to look at how power dynamics would affect that relationship and then complicate that and then have that go in a different direction than you would expect. And then we have um, Jackson's wife who has a fling and the power dynamics there affect how that relationship plays out at first and how it um, changes over time, but also how the culture of the Virgin Islands affects how that relationship develops over time as well. Um, We have um, Derek's younger sister, 
um, who's also experiencing or exploring her sexuality and how culture affects how she decides to do that and when she decides to act on those kinds of feelings. There's a lot of, a lot of me trying to grapple with how culture and how power and how ideology, belief, affect um, human relationships, but also relationships across the human and Ina um, spectrum. We just keep getting more stuff to chew on. <laughs> I can see why Brandon's already started a second read of this book. Oh, yes. It's just, it's just really good. There's a lot, a lot here. I was so excited when, when Jen was like, oh, Sean, do you want to do this interview with Brandon? I was like, yes, I would love to do this interview with Brandon because this book sounds great. Like, I was already into it because uh, Cadwell, we've spoken before. Mm-hmm. It's very important for us Caribbean genre writers to stick together out here. Right. Um, <laughs> I've, I've admired a lot of your uh, short short fiction work, and I was just like, this novel exists. I have to see it. I didn't even know what it was about by the time like a lot of the publicity had come out for it. And then when I started digging into it, I was like, this is exactly the kind of story that I wanted to see come out of the Caribbean, and I want other people to experience it in the exact same way and see that kind of value and these kinds of important conversations come out of that kind of work. Yeah, and it's it's important to add that like through having these kind of conversations, it's had it's it's given me a lot of opportunity to think about, yeah, what was I trying to say in the book? And it's been illuminating for me. It's it's one of those things where I'm also have to be like really honest. Like writers don't always know what they're trying to wrestle with in their soul when they're writing something. It's it's something that kind of comes out of the process and you discover it. And also when you when you finish the thing and you get to look back on it and then you have to get you have conversations with other people that are engaging with the work, it also illuminates a lot of things that you didn't realize that you were thinking about. Um the the hurricane parallels came very late for me. Um it came um during the um revision process for the novel. And so like it's also just exciting to think about the writing process and how that works, how you discover things about your own work and the work of other people through conversation. And I think that's really important to have. And so it's been really exciting for me to sit with people and have people ask me really tough questions that kind of stop me for a minute. It's like, huh, that's wow. You know, <laughs> like, thank you for having that reading uh, and teaching me something uh, about what, you know, what the text, because I also think that, um, the author does not control how a text is interpreted. It lives on its own to some degree. And so it's been like um really interesting to get get pushed back on certain questions of people to ask me like something and I'm like, you know what? I've never thought about it quite in that way. And so I, I was, you know, I'm just really thank you, Brandon, for asking me that question about um human relationships because it's it's something that I was like, huh, this is there is a lot of ways that power um, affects relationships both among the human beings and among the Ina. And there's also a lot of ways that culture affects relationships. I actually did not know that that was... I, As I was reading it, I was like, this is not organic. This, like, I mean, it's, ex it's experienced organically, but this is a thing that was deliberate and you had every intention of having this conversation. And now that I'm discovering that this was as much a discovery for you as it was for me, I enjoy it even more. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's, I mean, so it's definitely, it's definitely there. I know I wanted to have a conversation about um, 
the um the Caribbean proper and its relationship to queerness. And so that was something that I was definitely exploring within the novel. And the the Ina do act in some ways as um interesting parallels. The Ina acts as interesting parallels to larger things like colonialism, but they also act as to help to um to explore conversations around faith and belief and and violence and all these things. And so definitely um it also was um, being used in the novel to explore, you know, queerness, having having relationships that are seen as unnatural. There's a there's a moment where Patrice describes Derek's like love of Mira as in these terms as well. Um, but the power dynamic, the way that culture in, informs the way relationships behave in the novel, that's something that is there, but I don't know how it's there. This there's, there's so much. I'm not gonna lie. I think that there's so much of writing that's subconscious, you know, like. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. So, so we could keep going, but technically you have a life you need to go back to. <laughs> so before we uh, close this out, uh, why don't you tell folks where they can find you and your work? You can follow me on Twitter. It's, it's my name. Um, also on Facebook and Instagram. Also just my name. Um, and you can you can visit my website, um, catwellturnbull.com. It's one of the one of the perks of having a name that's kind of unusual is that I've never had really a problem of like getting an email address that's just my name with no special characters. And so, you know, if you're looking for me, I'm really easy to find. It's just my name at wherever you wanna go. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and my website. You you're very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you are i envy you uh, for a very brief moment i was there and then somebody in hollywood decided not to use their real last name and stole mine i'm coming for you sean duke mm, okay <laughs> i'm kidding well thank you so much cadwell for being on the podcast with us oh thank you for having me it's been a pleasure and listeners, obviously, if you'd like to drop us a line, you can do so through email at skiffyandfanny at gmail.com or on Twitter at skiffyandfanty. And don't forget book reviews and stuff on skiffyandfanny.com. We also have booktube videos at youtube.com slash skiffyandfanny. And if you don't want to miss stuff, you can sign up for our newsletter at skiffyandfanny.com slash newsletter. And lastly, finally, uh, if you like what we do, you can support us on patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. Thank you all for listening to our interview with Cadwell Turnbull, and make sure to check out the lesson, which is out now. Go go buy it, like, and then buy twelve other copies and give it to your friends. Yes, please, definitely do. Yeah, and if you if you don't, I mean, we won't come for you. We'll just probably sit around crying. I mean, if you don't, it's your loss. Yeah, that's true. So, on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you would like to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or find us on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, our webpage skiffyandfanty.com, or you can even send us an email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. The intro music for this podcast was taken from Rock Thing by Creo. You can find out more about their music on freemusicarchive.org.